Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And uh, today we're going to take on Kuvera's Gambit, which is the latest episode of Legend of Korra, uh, Season 4. So, I'll, I'll start with just my initial reaction, which was that this was a phenomenal episode. I had a, a fantastic time with it. Yep, same. <laughs> I remember, I think I I, uh, I contacted you just afterwards, or I contacted a, a bunch of people who I know watch the show, and I said, you know, this really was finally, you know, one of those episodes that we got, not on every episode of The Last Airbender, but just one of those episodes you, you know you're going to come back to because it's just so well done. Yeah, this is one of those episodes that reminded me of... Well, it's it's the kind of episodes that we haven't been getting at all in this season of Korra that we used to get in the previous seasons, and you know, episodes like the episode I always go back to, and we're gonna start the re- I'm gonna start the reminiscing process <laughs> right now, just a week out from the ending. But um, the episode and the winner is, which is episode six of the first season, uh, that episode kind of sets itself up as being based around the whole pro bending championships, and in the end, uh, the equalist is that when stadium, yeah, Mon comes and in right? ruin yeah. and completely, you know turn everything on its head and there's that great the first great fight scene of the series I think in the uh, arena with Lin and uh, oh yeah and that is Amon great and Korra and everything and that was the moment watching the show where I was like oh my god this is a, this is such a good show and um, there are there are other episodes I'm sure that I, I just can't think of off the top of my head but this was one you're right one of those episodes that you remember and you're like oh my god it just everything about this was so well done the uh Twist, you know, in in terms of concept, such as it is, was. I, I mean, we. It's so funny. At the end of our, our last uh, discussion, when I was like, "So we know what the Colossus is from Day of the Colossus now, because it's obviously yeah. a big gun." Well, you said I, that. I said, "Yeah, Let's I be said fair that." Here. Right. <laughs> I did say that, but I was, I, I was pretty, pretty sure. Confident. I like. Yeah, no, definitely. I, well, I mean, I was, I was had just as every all the characters were because what else could it possibly be, right? Mm-hmm. But no, it's actually the giant robot that I think you or one of us said a couple weeks ago. Right. Well, we is, we had both speculated on it. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That this would be, and then of course, uh, they totally they they made us think it was one thing, and that maybe we were wrong about our prediction. And then boom, it's it really is a giant robot. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Someone pointed out, though, interesting thing about the robot is, uh, you know, when they got to Zaofu and Toph, or someone was talking about how all of the uh, the domes uh, from Zaofu were were gone, or somebody was, no, no, maybe Katara, uh, not Katara, sorry, maybe Korra no- noticed that, or, or someone noticed that all the domes were gone, and now we know why they were being used for the robot. Well, this will, this actually, I think, goes all the way back to the first episode of the season when the mayor of that town says to Kuvira, like, you don't want to help us, you just want this area because it's rich in ore. Mm. And... Well, I mean, that's more... I gen- mean, there could have been other reasons, obviously. I was going to say, more, more generally, I think they just... Yes, I mean, she she uses areas or whatever to fund her army and her... And to... But I'm, I'm going to take that as a hint that she was amassing <laughs> metal for this project. Maybe, but I think that a lot of that metal all came from that. But I, it was intentionally bendable so that she could, you know, manipulate this. Well, I don't think she was bending the metal of the robot, though. Uh... I think she was like be- there were controls in the control but, room. But the robot, but I mean, sorry, the uh, the domes are bendable, though, aren't they? Like in 
No, they are, but I think I don't think she was bending the robot. But it's important it. that they are bendable. If I mean whether or not they are, because that'll determine how you know whether or not anyone can get in. That's true. Although I can't imagine even Toph bending something that it just it just so maybe not that size, huge. but you could you know she doesn't bend buildings when you she goes in the, by like, the wall. She could just rip open the side and go in. You could do the the pressure point thing that they that they did with uh, the or drill that. in the last Airbender. And, <laughs> That's you know, true. Yeah, little get little bits of it uh, taken out. That could be that could be one strategy. I mean, I you know that big front glass window is just asking to be smashed in. Um, Although there's only you know so close you can get to it, I guess. Well, you know, so that brings us. There's going to be a lot of speculation here, but um, uh, but the other thing they keep showing us is the loading mechanism, which I think is probably going to be important. Um, well, for the it's ammo. weird how. Uh, the robot has to like steady its arm, it, the gun, with its other arm, because um, and we've already seen how that the you know the recoil of the gun is just very very powerful. So I wonder if that's going to come into play because they did keep and I, I, they had to keep showing it because obviously the, the gun kept <laughs> getting fired. Right. But um, it, it seemed like a detail that. If not, you know, okay, fine. If it's just that's a detail they included, that's a smart thing to include because it's uh, paying attention to physics. the things they've established. Yeah, to physics, then that's cool. But I think it would be interesting to have that come into play in terms of taking it down and like disabling that arm so that you know she tries to fire it and it just rockets off into the distance. Quite possibly, quite. But there's a lot of there are a lot of little pieces here. I mean, one of them that we know is that obviously Kuvira is necessary for this thing to function. So getting to her would probably be uh, the first priority. Um, but before we get to the how we're going to take down this Colossus, and by, <laughs> by we I mean the characters, uh, we have a lot to talk about. I think we should go through this episode because there's a lot of pieces, uh, a yeah. lot of moving parts to this episode. And I think that the um, the reason I was so satisfied with this, with this episode is that there were so many satisfying moments, so many things I've been waiting for so many elements that came together in, in a really cool way. And the, the thing that, before we get into the specifics of it, I just want to more generally say my, what I love about Avatar uh, as, you know, the old series and the and Korra um, is that, in my opinion, it, it constantly redefines what it makes a perfect episode. Um, or and I would say this episode was was pretty perfect, and 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 I think what it, what what I love about the franchise is that it it can take what you so you right, let me rephrase it. So you have uh, there are certain elements which you feel like are essential to making a good episode. For example, in the old series, I always felt whatever Fire, Na- Fire Nation royal family drama was going on was always essential to making a really great episode. Um, Having said that, my favorite episode of the old series, barring Sozin's Comet stuff, was uh, The Blind Bandit. And I, it was only on rewatching it that I realized that the Fire Nation royal family has no role in that episode. Um, but it still features great choreography, great bending, great characters, great humor, great everything that you want in an Avatar episode. Uh, and so, you know, that, was, that spoke to me. So I said, you know, oh, well, how can they have this episode that I think is so well done? That doesn't include one of the things I think is so essential. And if you think about this episode, this is, this blew my mind. There's no bending in this episode. What? Wait. There's at least there's they fly. Uh, uh, Kuvira bends the controls, but there's no bending in this episode. There's just a giant robot shooting a laser. Oh my god. And yet, oh. 
and yet it still works and that's what they keep doing they keep taking these things we think are essential for it to make a good episode and they don't even include them and we still think they're a great episode and that is mind-blowing to me so you know you have you know you might think zuko alone is one of those episodes and that that features entirely it's just zuko for a whole episode and who, who knew you could get rid of the Avatar and still make a great episode? Or, you know, you have the, the Blind Bandit, or you have um, this episode where it just doesn't even feature bending. and It's just, it's crazy. I, I love I love that. That Yeah, I didn't even... Um, this reminds me of a while ago, I remember someone pointed out that uh, in the first Harry Potter film, Harry doesn't ever cast a spell on screen. <laughs> like not, not even one time. If you watch that movie, not even one time. Wow. And um, again, it's one of those things that, I guess it, in this episode, it, it, it functions the same way. You don't realize that that's happening because you're so much, the, the mindset that the show puts you in makes you contextualize everything you're seeing and it makes you add things that they don't have to show you. Mm-hmm. You you just kind of uh, fill in the blanks with, in this case, the stuff that you really like. So it didn't even occur to me that there's no bending because even though I really love the bending and the, and the fights on this show, um, I didn't even notice that it was gone. Right, yeah, exactly. And and it wasn't until, the, you know, afterwards I was trying to figure out what was so great and I was like, was the choreography great? And I went, there is no choreography because there is no bending. It's just Kuvira, you know, she does a couple of, very basic, you know, things in inside the mech, and that's it. And uh, you know, that's that's because usually episodes start with drama and end with, you know, some sort of bending showdown, and that just wasn't in this. And and yet, it was still so great. Um, but let's talk about why it was so great, despite the fact that it had no no uh, notable bending encounters. Um, you know, again, people still air bend, people still metal bend, but it's not as uh, significant here. Um, I would say uh, so. One of the first things we get, I I I think this was just uh, I, first of all, just on on the merit alone of the fact that I'm about to say the Wu scene was phenomenal is should should <laughs> should make should be the the uh, the calling card of this episode in the first place because it's just <laughs> it was a great scene. It was a great scene evacuating the city. Did you did you enjoy this? I did, and I love that what they've I love what they've done with Mako's character, the character who seemed so, well, okay, yeah, the character who seemed so significant in the first season and the second season, and who was kind of this very conflicted, very almost you could say tortured, uh, you know, uh, heroic love interest in seasons three and four is played as the most like stiff, boring, uh, you know unnecessary uh, part of this team and this scene it plays that so well where he's very you know trying to do everything by the book literally and explaining re- reading out the directions yeah, yeah, and yeah. the citizens are panicking are completely confused and it's it is funny you know he's because you know the joke is mako doesn't get it he thinks he's being very specific and you know being very clear but he is not i don't know in, inspiring to listen to and it's so funny that the creators kind of latched onto that I, I think at the beginning of season three is where this really started where they realized that Mako really he might be uh he might serve the show better in this role than in the <laughs> role he previously uh occupied but what's so cool is that you know before we saw him as like oh he's the straight man and who's the crazy like weirdo or whatever and um or you know it's or some variation on that 
But here we have a direct conflict of a bureaucratic, you know, follower of the state, you know, in in many ways, or, or at least, you know, he he follows his own moral core and everything. But this, you know, he's, he's bureaucratic at this point. You know, he follows the detective rule book. He follows the, you know, um, and then you contrast that with, you know, this, this like goofy weird character in Wu who's, you know, sort of selfish or whatever, but. But he's in more of an emo- uh, he's more of an emotional kind of guy, who's not you know as bureaucratic. He's not as caught up in the politics of what's going on. He's he lives uh, I don't know sort of in the moment. But they took this rather basic archetype, you know, this basic sort of character, and they turned them in turned him into this symbol of empathy. <laughs> I just I it's crazy. Um, <laughs> and and it was it started last episode where he he pitched the idea of of evacuating the. The citizens and that was crazy even Raiko was like wait deal with it. that that's a really good idea um and uh and 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 here we have him stepping in because Mako's just not getting that he's just sending out everyone into a tizzy instead of actually you know contributing um I also yeah. like that we don't see the panic in the streets uh oh did you like those that... those those freeze frame type 3d oh, things well, what I... I was gonna say that uh, just during the scene we get the uh, oh yeah we don't at all the it panic in the, right. in the public city represented through just these calls coming in on the switchboard that I was, was really very clever very very well executed it was oh but the, yeah the freeze frames actually I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't know about you but to me that really screamed we ran out of money <laughs> that's what I thought too and yet stylistically <laughs> like I thought it was kind of cool no yeah it looked fine but it definitely you could tell because it was only the the Pema and Wu evacuation scenes and I really got the feeling that like alright we don't have any money to actually animate well, this so they might not have but also it, there wasn't a lot of time so they could just show like three seconds of that it too. you know and so maybe that was part of it maybe it was maybe those were maybe it's not a, a money thing but those were time thing because I remember they said uh, I think for this season or maybe the last two seasons they shaved off a minute from each episode it felt like you could have done a traditional like animated shot in that t- in the time span that they showed, though. You know what I mean? Right. To me, it well, really I, felt like might have been it, this was a, like this was a storyboard that they kind of finished up and then did the Ken Burns pan across. <laughs> to well, a little bit, a little and they and meter. they did some um, some animatism, some some plane shifting, you know, across yeah, the yeah, yeah. 3D effect. It was kind of cool to see that, though. I thought that looked cool. I don't it know. Was it was interesting. A... It was a weird departure, but yeah. It was a little bit a little bit odd and it did stick out, but I don't know. I thought it, I thought it was fine. Um, but yeah, but no, yeah, I, it's not a knock against it. But. No, exactly, and, and so, but it's funny because they didn't even show the panic, and then they showed these still frames in the other part, and so it's like, well, maybe it was. But the phone calls, I mean, you're right, that was just great. Um, you, you immediately know what's about to happen as the the phone calls start coming in, and you realize the Mako is just not. You know, people are just freaking out. They're confu- at the very least confused, and then they start getting finding out that they're. They're panicking. Um, so, so we get this scene. It's it's a uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and it, it gives something. You know, it gives a reason for Wu to exist. Um, somebody uh, did ask a question, and, and they said, "You know, what? Why? What's Wu's impetus? What's I don't believe his arc. Um, I think we have come up with a reason for a reunion. That episode was def- um, defended here." When he specifically says, you know, I lived my entire life in fear that someone was going to get me and someone still got me. In other words, living in fear is not going to help you. You know, you have to take action, be proactive. So, you know, and be calm about it. But, you know, don't 
don't let fear consume your life because even then you still might not, you know. And that's exactly what happened to him in Reunion when he got kidnapped in the bathroom. That's true. I mean, that's yeah. I I didn't. I mean, I I got the referenced obviously to the to the bathroom thing, but yeah, I didn't think about the way that Reunion kind of well. I didn't think about that mostly because Reunion doesn't um, focus on him almost at all. But I agree that that's a good point. Although I think the you you could also argue that if you don't buy this scene, he this is a, an ego stroking exercise for him. He's getting to speak to the whole city and make oh, some sure. kind of sure. And so maybe yeah, that's is. the other side of the coin. And I think that's also well. But it may it may be both. You know, that's you know I think that's the exactly, idea that's you know, that that he he may be there. There is such thing as an egotistical, but um, benevolent king, you know what I mean? Like sometimes they, they think they're. Here's a good example. Okay, so I don't, I don't think Robert Downey Jr. is egotistical per se, huh. per se. I don't want to make that statement. I don't, I don't know him. I don't have any. But you know, he he sort of thrives on that persona, and yet he does crazy things like invite, you know, he invited like this entire class of what was like second graders or something to come over and watch Captain America: Winter Soldier at his house, you know, like cool stuff like that. So. Where people are sort of enamored with his his Tony Stark esque like lifestyle, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so where it can work maybe, in your yeah, favor? Yeah, maybe Iron Man is like Iron Man. The character might even be a better example of this guy who's very egotistical, but he'll also like you know he's when endearing. It, when, it comes, well, yeah, when it comes down to it, he'll he'll fly into the fray and help people. Sure, I mean, I, I guess there, it's also hard to separate the two, and it's funny, even Robert Downey Jr. is saying, oh, it's hard for me, sometimes I have to remember that that's Tony Stark and I'm Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> we are not the same person. And I'm like, that's a little worrisome, but all right. Um, but anyway, point is, <laughs> the point is is that, yeah, there's this, there's an endearing, that you can you can have someone like that and still, you know, find a deep attachment to them um, on a, a, you know, human level, uh, empathically. And and that's so that so that's uh, where Wu is going. I don't think he's nearly as magnetic as you know, say Iron Iron Man. But he's certainly uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's grown on me. I know you Speaking hated of, him, so I no, yeah, that's my that's the thing. I was I remember saying that first episode, like I hope they get rid of this character quickly, and we'll <laughs> be fine with him. If they do, I'll be fine because they you know. He won't have been aggravating me for an entire season, but if he's right, still right. around at the end of the season, I will be furious. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, he he grew on me much quicker than I thought he would, mm-hmm. and I did find his his speech in this in this scene very very funny. Um, He'd grown on me by the the coronation where he was you know hanging out with. Yes, that was that was great. I mean, that was by the third episode. So um, I think that was the moment for me too. Yeah, cause, well, that episode really humanizes him, even if it doesn't like make him a quote unquote better person. Right. Uh, because it kind of reveals the, where his where his egotism and where his uh, kind of neuroses stem from, and it's not just it's not as one dimensional as just he's an awful spoiled brat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, that reminded me. Speaking of um, empathizing for other people, what did you think of the opening scene with with Kuvira and Batar? Because I can see how this w- moment where they're talking kind of after she gives this speech. Uh, well, first of all, she gives the speech where she says, we're going to conquer the United Republic, and it kind of seems like this has been her endgame all along, mm-hmm. which I think lends a lot more... Um, I wish they had kind of... Clarified that. ...introduced seeds of... Well, yeah, I wish they had. there had been seeds of that earlier, so that she had been... It's almost like the seeds of, a, of that are the... the it's almost like we're going to find out in one of the comics or something that something from somebody from The Promise is related to Kuvira, and she's had this grudge for generations <laughs> or something, because there's, there's no precedent for it. Like and this well, yeah, ep- if, this if, episode in particular really 
builds on you know she's talking about how zuko and aang founded republic city this is all the promise you know um i'm i was kind of it was funny so i was talking to someone who was watching it with uh a friend who hadn't read the comics and he was like whoa zuko and aang founded republic city and he was like yeah and like didn't we know that already and he realized it was the comics that and so some people just died you know aren't up to date on the on the comics per se so they don't know the um the backstory there so but there's they've really they're really bringing all this stuff in it's kind of cool yeah and the, well the thing is like i totally buy that kuvira would obviously she would be the kind of person who would probably be upset about earth uh, kingdom uh land being taken away from the earth kingdom because right. she is a fascist right but you know it it just feels weird that this specific kind of motivation and retaking the United Republic wasn't introduced earlier because I really think it would have made her, uh, if not necessarily more of a threat, but it would have made her villainy. Um, it would have broadened the scope in a way, and it, it, it basically what it would have done is it would have uh, made the stakes of this episode consistent throughout the entire season. Because maybe the I think maybe the reason I didn't really get a handle on Kuvira for a while is because the idea of you know, conquering the Earth Kingdom with questionably ethical means, but with not necessarily uh, violent ones. It just, we didn't see a lot of really awful dictatorial stuff against, like, innocent people. But I think if they had introduced this, you know, idea that, you know, she is very anti-United Republic, and that's that's her final goal, that's what she's going to go after once she has the Empire, then, um her quest to unite the entire kingdom would have been a lot more uh, there there would have been a little more uh, attention involved for just for me personally maybe but uh, that said i think it makes it makes total sense to me that this is what you would want to do right right yeah no exactly that i mean so it would have you're right i it might have clarified things i think it's another example of in retrospect this might all fit together better um you know if that's we were in, that, upon that, rewatching yeah um and so that's that's always part of uh cora in general i think uh <laughs> is is going oh you know what in retrospect that really works you know that's it's weird even you even felt that way about season 2 um yeah that's true yeah so you know really who knows but what i find compelling about that as a villain standpoint is it is it brings her back into the I might even disagree. Like, I think it, it makes her a, a more sympathetic villain because um, there's a very there's a very nuanced um, argument there. Uh, it's it's something that people argue about all the time when with, with colonialism. You know, where uh, sure the initial um, the initial incursion was a terrible thing, and and that's pretty much not up for debate. But what do you do now? You've got generations of people who have grown up here who identify as whatever that nation is. So, do you just throw them out? That's one option. Um, but you know, I think I think it, it draws an ethical uh, dilemma. Do you know? Do you do you acknowledge that they're there and try and work within that, or do you just go back to the initial, you know, to the drawing board? And um, you know, and, and I won't bring up any major conflicts. I'm sure you can, you know, suppose from there, but. Um, or superimpose that those ideas from there, but it really it, it it's just more compelling because you know you have this, and it, it was compelling in the promise too, where you have these Fire Nation colonies in the Earth Kingdom. What do you do with them? And then 
you know, it was really the people themselves, which is a little bit different than maybe some real world scenarios, who said, look, you know, these were colonies, but we're Earth Kingdom and Fire Nation. We have no, and we we're, we're married. We have kids. We we're not. We don't feel like we're part of either nation or both nations, really. So, you know, what do you 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 taking us back into the Fire Nation or taking us into the Earth Kingdom is not a solution, and that's why you know they come up with this plan to do, you know, the the, the United Republic, and that so so to me that almost takes away Kuvira's villainy. Uh, or not takes away, it doesn't make her as one-dimensional. It makes her a much more nuanced argument. It's not conquer the world, which is what we thought even just as, even last episode. I was like, oh no, she wants to like conquer the world. Uh, but it, that, that's not the case at all. She's actually more interested in reclaiming former territory, which I think is, is interesting. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that's, you know, that's absolutely true as well, and I think that and nuance. I, I, I think she was, you could argue that she was there was a different nuance to her kind of plan of attack in the uh, previous episodes of the season in terms of yeah, the whole idea of she is she wants to unite people and be a leader and kind of restore order, but at what cost? And there was, So that was going on, but I don't think that was as compelling because this it, it just didn't feel as... She, she didn't feel as dangerous. And I, I think maybe the problem is I just don't care about the Earth Kingdom... Uh, which is so, you know, such a broad, I mean, it's so big. It's sprawling, it's so yeah. big. Um, it's hard to kind of conceptualize just what the Earth Kingdom, the whole thing is. Well, and also easy... when it had, had so much, so many years of just terrible mismanagement anyway, so you were like, meh, you know. Exactly, that's the thing. Well, that's, and I guess that was the nuances, but that's the problem. It's like, all right, she's nuanced because, yes, she is technically, you could argue, doing a good thing, but... I don't understand why the heroes really care so much, right. as, as opposed to people like the Red Lotus or, um, you know, Oman, where who have clearly had tangible impacts on the lives of the main characters. Right. Uh, where I think maybe that's really what it is: is uh, none of our characters live <laughs> in the Earth Kingdom, so this really doesn't have an impact on them, and it really feels like almost. They're the ones intruding on her business. Exactly. But now she is, you know, stomping up to their door with a gigantic robot, and it finally feels like they have an impetus but to But I could get invested in it. The fray. But I could get it. We got invested in, in... Well, I mean, I guess I guess they did have... We did have personal connections to them. But I think you can personalize it, or just... You can make us care. Like, for example, I don't actually have an opinion on Republic um, City or the United Republic or any of that. But I do understand... Like, because I live in the real world, the idea of colonialism and the problems of, like, the ramif- the ripple effects in history of colonialism, and then later, what do you do with colonials? Like, for example, in America, there's a good example. What do we do 300 years after, you know, we've displaced a bunch of Native Americans from their, um, from their, like, their homes, you know, and th- th- largely live on reservations and things like that? Like, at this point, what do you do? It's a really complex question. There's there's anthropologists and all these people who try and address this question in Canada and in Mexico and all these places where there's these, you know, these ramifications of what what happened, you know, centuries ago. What do you do now? And you know, one argument is if you know all of the Amerindian you know nations got together and built a giant mech and kicked all <laughs> all <of> the Americans <laughs> out, that would be one solution. You know, certainly another solution is to try and figure out a way to coexist better than we have been. So, um, which is I think what the Avatar is pushing for. At least that's what Aang was pushing for. But not Zuko. 
because I remember Zuko had a had different ideas of the whole conflict of the promise. So, yes, this is very interesting. And now, you know, what else is the other thing that's interesting is this might cause Izumi to come back and get involved, or maybe Zuko, because Zuko's still around, and Zuko had to have this exact argument with the Earth King just, you know, 60 years before or 50 years before. Well, I think certainly that uh, this is going to be... I mean, it's firing. It's where you know, where Azumi rolls in, like uh, yeah, yeah, we're expecting like Iro did in season one. But it's not just it's not just I have an army and I'm going to come and help. It's also my father was fought this fight already, you know, in a you know, it not you know a war per se, but he fought you know with the Avatar over this whole subject, and they finally came to a peaceful conclusion. Um, and now someone's trying to screw up our agreement, which we made decades ago. Come on, let's go, <laughs> let's get this together. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Um, well, the reason actually, this is all this is very interesting conversation, obviously. But the reason that I was uh, thinking of the uh, opening scene was this moment she has with Batar Junior, um, where they seem to have this very their relationship in this episode. Oh yeah, you and brought the way, that up. <laughs> the way that Zelda Williams, the way that Zelda Williams plays uh, her scenes with Batar is just perfect, and it's they could have very easily done a. Th- uh, this kind of thing where, and I think a lot of uh, fans were probably, well, I know a lot of fans were theorizing this, that she doesn't actually care about him, she's just using him, or, you know, right. she he's disposable to her, and I think, you know, that's a very, I, I just think that's too easy. And I think it's much more interesting that she's a villain, but she also does love someone. She genuinely loves Batar. And you can see in this moment where they embrace, and she, this this, in this shot, Normally, when you get this shot where uh, the a sinister person is hugging someone, and um, while well, while the other person can't see their face, they kind of open their eyes and they have this they little, glare, like, yeah. sneaky yeah, smile, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which Kuvira does all the time, but not in this scene. Yeah, but no, yeah, we we get that shot, but like her eyes are closed and she's smiling, she's happy, yeah, she loves him, and I think it's so cool that we can have this villain, and we got this kind of with Zahir and Pali last season too. Um, we have where you can have a very, very, very evil uh, person who can also express genuine sentiment um, that isn't based in calculation or is, and isn't based in kind of, you know, they're not using this person for their own kind of for their own kind of gain. And when we get to the end of the episode and um, <laughs> what she does, where she decides to basically sacrifice him. Uh, in order to take out everybody else, this doesn't seem like a cold action. It's it really seems to me like she regrets having to do this, but because of the person she is, she is capable of she is capable of doing she's it. She's so without, pragmatic you know, that she can just yeah. She she she's not gonna stop herself on sure, like yeah. moral grounds. This is just she yeah, sees we, her we've opportunity got to talk and to, and we've got to talk about that last scene. Um, yeah, oh uh, my God. but but first I want to I want to actually ask you about the and I by the way I totally agree with all, with all of that I think that it's you know they haven't built their relationship up that much but um and actually this probably ties in a little bit to the other uh, element to this which is kind of cool which is the historical side um I'm I I'll link this in the uh, in the article but there's a you know someone has gone through and and they often do this you know with the Earth Queen and all these other people who have direct historical counterparts um so there's a Obviously, we know Kuvira has connections to all these fascist leaders and Nazis, things like that. Um, 
even down to stormtroopers and things that you know we've seen um but we also uh i i did not know this and and this is a, a big part of the show uh, a big part of the episode where uh Raiko, president Raiko, uh turns the city over to kuvira she shows up with her giant mech and he basically says okay yeah um you can have the city <laughs> um which is what basically uh french uh president Renault did uh paul reno in world war Two, which is infamous uh because you know this is this is the, the the reputation of france you know since then or the the sort of the generic reputation is that you know they surrender to everyone um with a stereotype um but it's but it, in large part because of this big you know moment where you know the president of france turned over um the country to the germans and then proceeded to help them in in rounding up you know Jews and whoever else they were hunting down for, you know, for the Nazis. And, uh, you know, that's the only way to really complete this metaphor is if they go in and start rounding people up in this next episode and sending them to um, re-education camps, which they might do. We don't know. Because we don't know how many people got out. Um, so I thought that was really cool, but going back to Batar Jr., um, you know, there's also, they also drew comparisons between uh, Batar Jr. And, and the Nazi youth, who, um, who were, you know, obsessed with following, you know, Nazi culture, following Hitler and all this other stuff. And then ultimately when it came to the uh, actual combat, they were ended up being used as human shields um, and, and you know, became cannon fodder, totally dispensable. And uh, despite their utter devotion, and in many ways that parallels what Batar did. Now, I think the difference being, of course, that, as you said, uh, Kuvira has uh, some connection to um, Batar and, and does care about him, but ultimately, and I think that's what she's saying in that ultimate in that last that last moment is that she ultimately she, he she, he wasn't a tool. He wasn't exclusively a tool, but he was let's say sixty percent the tool and forty percent her her lover. You know what I mean? Like ultimately, what he was more to her was a tool because otherwise she wouldn't have done what she did. Well, I think what I think the key moment here is when. Because if we look at like the structure of the dialogue of their dialogue in the final scene, and he tells her, "Yeah, the avatar's here. Everyone's here." She switches it off. Uh, the she switches her side on mute and says, "Find out where the signal's coming from." And my initial reaction when she says that is, "Oh, she's gonna blow them all up." But when I rewatched it, what I think she's actually saying there is, "Well, we gotta go find them." But then the next thing he says is, "Hey, look." Uh, you got to stop this because otherwise I won't be able to see you again. Um, we have the Earth Empire. Let's just be happy with what we have. And I think this is, you know, Kuvira kind of realizing... I, I think Kuvira maybe thought that they had an understanding that, like, work came before family. Well, not and... well, not just work. Also, I think her, her word came before anything else. I mean, exactly, yeah. She I made the decisions. <laughs> she had, yeah, she had this idea that, like, look... Uh, I love you and everything, but we <laughs> but... like we both have to be on the same page with regard to my plans to uh, conquer <laughs> the United Republic. Right. And if you're not going to be uh, a part with of me on yeah. that, then clearly we you don't we don't have the same understanding of this relationship. Right. And at this at that moment, I think she's able to cut her losses, even though you know I don't think she stops loving him in that moment, which is why her voice kind of is, you know, the, the, like I said, Zelda Williams. Great performance in this episode, which he's saying that final, like, goodbye, I love you. It's not cold. It's not 
you know, this is not a heartless thing that she's doing. There's, she, there's, there's some sadness. emotion. Yeah, no, I think it, Nate, I was talking to Nate about this, um, one of the other uh, movie film uh, writers, and he, he said specifically that um, he, he could hear that in, in her voice at the end, it was just the right little twinge of emotion uh, that really, that sold the, the moment. Uh, I thought that was cool. I don't, I don't remember if I, you know, I don't know if I noticed that per se, but I, I certainly got the complexity of that. It wasn't, it didn't feel just like, you know, a straight up cold moment. The other line that for, for sure she sells is where um, she's talking to Raiko like a minute beforehand and Raiko says, yeah, but Tara's not here. And she says, well, then where is he? Right. And you can hear like, she's not angry. She is, you can hear there's like a little panic. twinge of panic. Yeah. She's like, well, oh my God, where did he, right. you know? Again, like it's almost like love, it's almost happened? like she's realized then that she might have to sacrifice him, you know, or like that you know this could go south and she's gonna because she sort of you know it almost seems like she was she's like you know if I was ever in that position I would sacrifice him but I'm gonna do my best to make sure we're not in the position where I ever have to do that and then I think and in I that think moment she's, she's lost of, control she's lost control of the situation which is something she obviously hates you know she likes to yeah. be in control of things That's and so true. in that situation she's like oh no. This is not something I accounted for. This is not something I'm in control of. I, I don't know what to do now, and it may lead to my, you know, significant other being in jeopardy. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, Kavir's priorities, um, what's interesting is that she, she obviously prioritizes her military conquest above Batar, but I don't think that means that it doesn't, doesn't mean that she in. does not care for Batar sure, yeah. genuinely, but I also think that you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, I think she's the kind of person who would think if she was in Batar's shoes, she would hope that Batar would blow her up, you know, for the sake of the glory of the Earth Empire. Sure. Because I don't, because you know, that's just the kind of person she she is. Even if Batar, even if she was still like the commander, the general of the army, you know what I mean? Right. I think that this is genuinely what she cares about, and not, it's not like she's just saying, oh, well, you know, I, I never cared about Batara to begin with, which is why this moment has is so much more powerful than it could have been. I think it could have been, be just, it could have been played as just a, she's evil a kind of yeah, dramatic yeah. twist. Yeah, 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 like, sure. oh, she's, look how, we, she's even more evil than even, we thought. Even more cutthroat than we thought, yeah, sure. But, I, and it will, I mean, we'll see next week, because the final shot is so yes, yes. ominous and... with her kind of, like, reborn in fire. Right, well, and we have a couple of things to get to before that because we do. <laughs> um, one of them, I think, that we should talk about. Well, first of all, before we, let's let's deal with Kuvira. Just to get the last bit of Kuvira, Kuvira out of the way. Do you like Colossus as a yeah. thing? Oh my god, it's awesome! I think one of my big worries was, you know, what happens with big monster fights. You know, in everything from Power Rangers to Godzilla to is they tend to be like big, like slow punches, and you know, like so they're not to me. That's not interesting. Like. You're supposed to imagine the mass, you know, coming behind these punches and like, oh, he gets knocked over and then, oh, another punch and he gets knocked. Like, I like fast, choreographed, cool fighting. This is why I like Avatar. And so I don't like big fights, which is why I really disliked the fight in the end of season two of, of, of Korra. But here we get a fluid, flexible, fast, actually threatening, fun to watch mech you know, suit thing. And I think that was what my big worry was. And they, I was like, well, this is the moment. What is it going to look like when, you know, so the Sky Bison should be able to just avoid the, the laser. Nope. <laughs> you know, like, and so like, I thought that was really 
great that they that she demonstrated that it was a threat not just to slow moving targets but to like actual people trying to bend or get close or whatever and so that to me sold the the idea and the other thing is um i don't i think that this you know by necessity cannot be a giant monster fight or giant robot fight because there's no second giant robot unless not yet unless some (laughs) last second you know ass pull on the part of Varric or so yeah i had this giant well no or 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 cora does giant spirit cora again which i would also oh i hope they don't do that they they can't do that again as much as i thought as much as i think that would be cool to see i just i can't i i it would be much cooler to have some other giant thing. robot be taken on by all of our heroes. Yeah, no kidding. Know, I mean, tiny this is Shadow of the Colossus. That's what it is. Um, oh, that's what they called it. <laughs> well, you know, but Shadow of the Colossus is, you know, the video game is is the whole premise is that you're, you know, a kid wandering around with a horse and you find these giant, you know, statues. It's a video game. Uh, it is giant statues and uh, that are moving and that you can climb them and you're supposed to take them all out. Uh, you're supposed to kill them. Um, but you're tiny and these things are huge. Uh, it, was a, it was on the PS2. It was a very well-known, uh, well-recognized uh, game. And uh, it, but, but what was so fun about that, it wasn't that you were also a giant person fighting these things. You were always very small, clinging onto the back of a flying colossus or climbing up you know, the, the leg of a giant colossus trying to hold on. And that was what was so cool about it was the, the David Goliath you know, paradigm that's so fun to, to watch. So that's what I'm hoping for here. Having said that, some interesting theories have, have popped up, and I think that I would love to get your, uh, your ideas on this. Some people think that they've shown mountains getting destroyed. You know, I, oh, we had that great scene at the border where she just literally kills, like, ten people. We, yeah, that was... That was harsh. That was yeah. awesome, beautiful. And I love that. Can I just say that I love Studio Mayor didn't... You know, it tends to be in a lot of these, you know, in anime and other stuff that we get these explosions are so gratuitous. They go, they go on so long. They're so over the top. The explosion happens pretty much exactly how you might expect it to in real life. There's no fanfare. Blows up the, um, she blows up the uh, the the outposts, and 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 it, the whole explosion takes over. You know, it's like half a second long. You know what I mean? It's not it's not over the top. There's no like giant people jumping out of it. It just is very simple they all died she's terrifying that was it uh, so i i just love that little subtlety that they and it wasn't so, the subtlety of the moment you know that she was just they, it was it was underplayed uh and that's something you don't often see in in um, eastern animation styles um but but getting back uh to uh the, the this idea people had so they keep showing mountains blowing up especially in in the last uh, episode where we see the the town gets you know the the gun gets moved so she shoots the mountain and it explodes um if no one can get close to the colossus because it's too fast and they can't get near it do you think one of those errants laser blasts is going to hit Zahir's prison and perhaps allow him to become involved in the final fight I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> because I mean, and and I and I I want to just preface this with an actual bit of evidence from the finale of last season, which we know this this um, story is connected directly to that, and we've already seen it here this season, where they they talk about well, why why don't you just you know hit Zahir out of the sky or why don't you do something to to attack Zahir and they say well it's not worth it he's too fast you can't 
he's too difficult to hit. I think Tenzin says that. Um, and if that's the case, that's exactly what you need in a situation like this. And we already know he hates the fact that what he did led to Kavira's rise. So from there, we speculate. <laughs> this would be so Well, it would be so perfect because this entire season has been about Korra trying to rid herself of him. Right. And in this, I would love to have this moment where the two of them have to. And we. It might be how this next episode ends, where like it just, or maybe maybe he doesn't get uh, freed because of the laser. Maybe she just shows up at the end of the episode and says like, "All right, we're out of options. We need your help." And then it ends. You know. The problem is that we did kind of get this in Beyond the Wilds uh, in terms of their, you know, him uh, admitting that what he created with Kuvira is completely antithetical to his entire philosophy, and he feels so bad about that that he will help the Avatar take her down. Um, we, so we that already did happen, but I think it would, would be really cool for that to just be kind of prelude to him really getting either involved. getting freed from prison and then... Well, and then what I would really love is if he helps them beat Kuvira, and then he's like, yeah, I'll go back to prison. Like really? I feel like, I was, like that was because like, that's my question is the, the reason I have I, I'm reticent about like saying this might happen is that I don't know what you do with him after that you know this 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 season isn't about him you know as the main villain right so you can't have the main villain lose and then still have to deal with it here so what do you do see I feel like I I feel like I don't think this is necessarily what would happen if I'm just speculating but I, I could see them kind of selling this moment where. They win. Zaheer helps them win, and Zaheer is kind of like, "Yep, I. You know what? I I will go back to prison. I'm because even if I'm not totally sorry for what I did, I am. I mean, I I am sorry for uh, doing what I did in terms of uh, creating a situation where Kuvir could rise to power." And whatever I've you know been meditating a lot, and I feel better now, and. You know, something like that. He, he's been in right. his, alone in this dark room f- doing nothing but meditating into the spirit world. I could see him kind of coming to this understanding where he's like, oh yeah, I don't want to kill the Avatar anymore. Uh, just Yeah, but he still, seemed, he still seemed pretty adamant about it. He was like, you know, like we find ourselves temporarily you know, alive kind of thing. So, I don't know. But I realized as you were talking that there is a another question that might tie into this. Why did they bring Asami's father back into the picture in hmm. earlier in this this yeah, season? Yeah, remember we speculated about that. We did, and then we haven't heard about it since, and I didn't even think about it until now, and I realized that's another villain who was in prison, and they brought back, and you know, was temporarily involved, maybe only to promote Asami's storyline. I, I again, I really like those scenes, but why, you know? And so you wonder, is, is he, he going to play a role in, in trying to deal with the Colossus? Is, is Zaheer going to play a role? Are these villains going to become, you know, it's, it's part of Korra's understanding of their viewpoints to reintroduce them to the world? Or what happens? You know, what is the point of this? Oh, my God. You know what I just realized? What? We have a specific line in this season where Varric says that he got the idea for the Spirit Ray when uh, the fight with uh, the Unalak fight helped him break out of prison. You remember when he says that? 
Oh, yeah. He says during that fight, his, the prison got destroyed, and he was able to escape, and that's where he got the idea. So that's obviously, there. That is, I'm not in any way suggesting that that is intentional foreshadowing, but... Uh, Yet more that, weird evidence. That would be, yeah, that's some very strange, like, conjecture. Although maybe maybe that would feel too repetitive if they also had to hear escape by the same method. I think they could do it as, in, I think they could play it off as, like, a callback. They could. They could. They could certainly could, and that could be kind of fun because it's been at least a season since then. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, whatever they do, because they need to come up with a way to get to the um, to the main body uh, of this Colossus. Clearly, that's going to be the the goal of this next episode. Um, and then I think Korra and Kavira have to have their big showdown, and I think all that will probably happen in some fashion. Um, and it's funny I don't sound that enthused because I again as although I didn't hate it as much as you did, their last meeting was not terribly fascinating um or interesting to watch uh but what i do like is you know and so we do have these other airbenders who are not fast enough to probably navigate which they'll either find out or they've already decided you know in this next episode uh, in terms of avoiding the laser of this colossus but um we do have and one of these airbenders of course is first of all kai reappears oh yeah for half a second and then disappears again. And they're like, oh, he's here. I'm like, well, where was he in the past 15 episodes? Where like There were situations where he might have been relevant. And then he's like, oh, I have to stick with Janora. Do, do you? You haven't been around her for many, many episodes now. But anyway, let's just leave that aside. But um, we saw Tenzin in the uh, Airbender jumpsuit. That was, yeah, when I first saw that, I was like, whoa. No fanfare. This, this doesn't... <laughs> This doesn't compute. I don't understand what we're seeing. Um, but yeah, it was it was weird to see, and I I realized that the reason it was weird to see is because we don't. He's central. Is, he's central command. He never gets. He never gets dressed up. Well, the reason, yeah, and the reason it was kind of just a uh, a shock initially was that the, we so rarely, if ever, see Tenzin's the outline of Tenzin's body. <laughs> yeah. Because he's always in that kind of robe, rectangle yeah. robe, so that's just the image I have of Tenzin is this just you know this rectangle basically. But now we see him like with an actual the shape of a human. Being I actually sort of imagine weird. him as a spinning top because he's sort of like a cone, you know. <laughs> because when he's jumping, when he jumps, he like does that little spin thing. So I don't know. I've always yeah. thought of him as, and he's kind of have like a pointy head. I don't know. But whatever yeah, he was, well, but, he but when you ropes, see him, yeah. when you see him in the suit, you're right. It's a skin tight suit. It's a very odd phenomenon. But it was cool. They show up, and you know he gets part of this little uh, strike team that that takes Batar in, um, and uh, and we continue to have, uh, you know, little little bits and callbacks and and things where you know uh, that Korra tries to intimidate Batar, and she doesn't have the Avatar voice, you know, Avatar state voice because she lacks the other past lives and. Um, but she still is talking to uh, Batar and trying to come up with a way to convince him to participate, and he, you know, he won't, and um, uh, she she won't kill him, and he knows that, and that's a great moment. But um, I like the way that she sort of, uh, you know, manipulated him by, you know, playing on his loyalty to to Kavira. Yeah, what's funny is that this her yeah her threat seems very uh, original. Like creatively original in terms of the writing. Oh yeah, that was cool. Like, yeah, the, what I you know I don't know why that what I specifically expected her to say in that moment, but I 
I expected it to, and not in a bad way. I, I did, you know, I expected it to be a, a variation on a theme that we've heard before in terms of heroes kind of intimidating villains. Um, but this was like, and again, it, it goes back to this idea that this these are villains who are uh, in very real, honest love with each other. Oh yeah. And the idea or at that least, the hero yeah. can... This is normally something that the villain would say to the hero to kind of play on their emotions right, to, yeah. to get them to slip. But Korra is able to, to do this to Batara. just such a cool thing. It's like, yeah, I will drag you around the world and make sure you never see the love of your life again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such... It, it's a very... It's dark. It is a, it is a bad guy kind of yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. place to, to go into an argument. But it is a very kind of... That idea of being the underdog and, and being in hiding and just, I'm going to drag you along with me, is a very uh, heroic uh, position to be in that argument. It, it just It's a cool combination, and it's not something that I, I think I've ever... I've, I've never heard a variation on that before. Well, I think, I think, think. part of it is that maybe Korra has to realize that she's, you know, she's the Mace Windu of this universe, right? Let's <laughs> do the Star Wars, where she's, you know... Okay, so for the non-Star Wars out there miss Mundu uh is is that character who you know um he's the he's a jedi but he he has this his fighting style called vapa and he's like he's uh not he's not uh he's good you know he's a, he's on the light side of the force but he has you know had dalliances with the dark side and isn't you know he's his his fighting style is directly tied to the dark side and it's very it's one of those styles that's very tempting to you know dive all the way into become a Sith or, you know, whatever. So, um, uh, or become Sith, maybe it's not a Sith, whatever. Um, I don't know what the grammar is there, but, uh, I think you would know better than me because I don't know any of this. You don't know any of this. Okay. Well, his, his fighting style and everything is all predicated around this, 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 in other words, just to simplify it, his fighting style and his, his history and everything is all, uh, dedicated to this, uh, this balance between the light and the dark side that he's able to use things like force lightning he uses in the, in the third movie. Um, because and the only reason he has access to these kinds of powers is because he's he uses them even though he's really good. You know what I mean? And so it's this balance sort of this balancing act between good and bad, which is balanced, which is the name of this book. And maybe Cora has to realize and you know, she's dealing with villains who she's seeing their perspective and maybe that's what this is. You know, this is another example of that of her coming into this sort of, you know, chaotic good you know this or chaotic neutral sort of perspective on the world where she's not always the hero but she has to use tools from all parts of the world all parts of good and bad and light and dark to get her her point across i know i'm reading into this scene quite a bit but i just you know i think that that you know we have to work the other thing we're trying to predict here is where her arc ends and maybe that's where it ends that she realizes that maybe she's not the the the, the pure good hero that you know the avatar is, has been seen as that maybe the avatar is this neutral entity in a lot of ways, and so in this case, she she pulls on both a villainous and heroic uh, approach to get what she wants. It would be the opposite of Aang's arc, it, where Aang was always, you know, I think Aang always really wanted to be neutral. He, you know, that was very very true to his air nomad teachings. I think he always wanted to be true. very fair and very and not be kind of swayed by. Uh, human interests yep. but he inevitably was and that's what he had to realize ultimately and uh, I think it was in that final scene in Sozin's comment where talks to the avatars I think it was avatar Yang Chen um, or the waterbending avatar's name I don't remember uh, um, Kuru. Was like 
Yeah. Oh, no, it definitely was Yang Chen, because she's the heir of one, duh. Uh, who was basically like, look, yes, you're the Avatar, but you cannot detach yourself from the world. Right. You have to be connected to the world. You have to have bias, basically. Right. It, that's just inevitable, and you cannot be a good Avatar. You cannot protect the world if that's, if that's not possible. But that's never been a, that's never been a concern for Korra. Well, it hasn't and been a concern from Korra, and now she doesn't even have to worry about those past lives, or you know, she can she has a chance to redefine what the Avatar does. She already yeah, she already did her, by 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 opening the spirit portal. Maybe her arc is is coming to the opposite end, where she starts as this you know very clearly very uh, you know, opinionated. I guess is a weird way to put it, but you know what I mean. And kind of coming to this place where she realizes that she there is no. Uh, one correct way to attack any issue, uh, any issue, any problem yeah. that she might come across, she has to adopt this the Avatar's perspective on the world, and that is a perspective that can't be as motivated by her earthly concerns. Exactly, and you know what's what's funny about that? You know, she's got to let go of her earthly te- uh, tether. Exactly. Oh, because, and that's when Zaheer comes. Oh my God! Because, it's all well, coming together. Well, because you know who said that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's yeah that guy. Who's I don't that know. guy? Um, some <laughs> some windy guy. Uh, some <laughs> some ba- some bag of hot air. Um, but but all I can think of when you were talking about that is that one scene in the first season where she grabs the the megaphone and she's you know there's that guy talking about non-bender rights and she grabs the megaphone and says, "What are you talking about? You guys have you know?" And that's a point where she's really taking a side on something. And you know I don't know that she would ever do that now, where she just doesn't. Because she's seen these, perp- you know, the point people's purpose. She's seen uh, these villains, uh, their their perspective, and she's realized that maybe she can't be so um, uh, didactic, you know. And and I think that's I think that's what it is. You know, she's she's realizing she's got to be a little bit more wholesome in her approach to any of these situations, and that. And there was that moment, yeah. There was also that moment a little later where she has a chance to take out Kuvira, and like something inside her stops her from doing it. Right. Right, exactly, exactly, and I think that's what it is. Where she she thinks she knows exactly what she wants to do, or at least in, you know in the beginning of this series, and now she's beginning to realize that maybe the obvious answer isn't always the right one. Yeah, this is whew, it's all coming together. It is. Um, well, we'll see if it actually does, but I think so. I think that's where it's narrowing in on. And if so, that was a very complex idea to communicate. Very like a vague sort of thing. Um, if that was, then I apologize for my <laughs> these past couple episodes of the show. Um, you can just... Because that was some old... intricate plotting. Because that, yeah, that makes oh, this really damn. a character-driven season. You know, that makes a lot of yeah, so, no, so, and if the whole that's series, the con- really. If that's the conclusion they come to, and honestly, I think that you can, whatever conclusion they come to is going to um, kind of reveal this more intricate plotting. Even if it's not specifically that. Um, yeah, I would like to just preemptively apologize <laughs> uh, well, for all the uh, things I said about how awful the plotting of the season was, because I'm sure I was wrong. Well, let's save it for the finale. <laughs> um, so uh, b- b- in our last little bit here, let's really um, delve into the, the, the explosion, because this is... Uh, this this episode ends. You know, it's not as brutal, I think, because it's not as individual as that that ending where um, Tenzin's getting beaten uh, by the Red Lotus, which clearly clearly was supposed to signify, I think, him dying, dying 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's what everyone what that, thought. Like we talked about that the cinematography of that show. Oh, everything was, about it. And that was heartbreaking. Yeah. That episode was... I thought the episode was genius. It really was an ap- excellent episode. Oh, it's such a great episode. An episode um, much like this. Uh, very similar. Very similar. And I, and I think it might even be the same place in the season, actually. Um, I'm the same place. Yeah, yeah it's right around the last three episodes. So, but here we have... Um, we have a bunch of the main cast, um, and we have Bitar Jr., and we have the twins and a couple of other people. And uh, Kuvira locks on, somehow traces the uh, radio signal. I don't know. They have GPS now. Sure. Yeah, why not? I just bought it. I was like, you know what? Fine, <laughs> if you say so. Um, maybe it could just be that they he was basically pointing uh, a radio receiver in different directions, and whatever was strongest, that's where he was going, which is not really GPS at all. It's a very – actually, I – to be honest, I don't. Maybe know. they're just kind of pinging it, and they were like, "Well, well exactly. hey, it's right there." Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty close. close. Yeah, and it doesn't seem too far fetched. But let's just leave the tech out of it. Yeah, sure, um, why not? So she sees it. They were like, "You know, oh crap, this is. Oh no, what do we do?" And then um, she fires at the at the station. We talked about her reaction with with Bitar Junior. Now the question is, who survives? Right? Like who? makes it out of this explosion alive because we don't see anything after this. So here's my thing. Um, <laughs> the because um Jesus I feel like uh, we and and I think to, to a larger extent the, the the larger fan base has these conversations as if this as if the show is Game of Thrones and um, <laughs> and it's not. Like no, yeah, I could while I could definitely see, well, uh, you know, they can kill off characters. They do. They kill off characters uh, all they the time. They really do. Uh, yeah, um, but I don't think that we should, or that, or maybe, you know, that we necessarily can look at this as like which of the heroes are making it out of this cliffhanger alive. Just if only because this is a Nick show, and I don't know if they'd kind of. I don't know that they'll kill any of the the main characters, but I think that the strongest. Cont- I'll give you the two people who I think are. Okay. Viable. Yeah. Because I have some, too. Right, because I think that the, the two people who are the most viable are one of the twins. Um, because, again, as you pointed out in previous episodes, they've shown them. Why are they there? But <laughs> they exist to be the kids of Suyin, so maybe that's it. And so simply having them die, and not because they're interesting characters, but because by virtue of them being Suyin's child. It's sort of like you could be introduced to a character in a movie who you don't know. Uh, you don't know their kid or anything. You just know that their kid died a long time ago, and that's sad enough. You don't need to have met the kid. You know what I mean? Uh, as as terrible as this is, but like it's the you know it's it's just the simple idea of having to you know to to bury your offspring. It's it's, it's a terrible terrible thing, and so that might be enough to justify it in this. Uh, and they're not children, you know, they're teenagers or you know semi adults or whatever. So that might be a thing. Uh, the other thing that might also be, uh, and I don't think this is going to happen. So this has just been speculation from a lot of people. Uh, is that Mako is the one who who goes because in and I'll I'll link to this too. There's an album I think I sent it to you, um, where in the last few frames of this shot, Mako literally disappears in the beam. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> so uh, by like purely objective standards, he's dead. <laughs> Um, I don't know that that's actually the case. Uh, I don't. I, I sincerely doubt that. But uh, he's 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 gone. Uh, so like narratively, I don't even understand why you would do that. But I do. 
This is the, such a the, funny idea. I'm just picturing it. The album, I haven't even looked at the it. The album is... I like that you're laughing at... You're giggling at... at the whole dying. concept is hysterical to me. <laughs> well, I like that someone analyzed it to see what happened. Yep. Okay. The album is called uh, Mako. <laughs> yep. He's... <laughs> Yeah, he's gone. He disappears. Um, I don't know. Yeah, he. Uh, he could be behind uh, in the the last. He's frame probably there. behind the rubble. Um, Maybe knocked I out. I do like. I do like Batar's Face? expression in this last. Yeah. Frame. <laughs> he looks like a chibi <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> oh my god, this is hysterical. Um, but speaking of which, uh, the only person I have on Death Watch is Batar. Because that's another good. Po- that would probably be my third. Yeah. Yeah, if I think... Or my second, actually. I don't think Mako's going to die. The only thing is, I here, here are my kind of three spheres uh, in terms of this discussion. I don't think they would kill someone like the twins, if only because, like you said, we don't really care about them, so it would just feel kind of like a waste. Um, I don't think they would kill a character we do care about because it would be weird to have that character be dead in the first five minutes and then, like, we have to do a whole episode after that and it feel, you, you run the risk of just... Having that be brushed aside when it feels like if you're going to well, do depends, that, you have to it do depends the rest if of the they episode. it depends if they pick up midway through the blast and then except like re reshowing some of those shots just to pick up the momentum, you know. Maybe, um, but my third idea is uh, everyone is fine except for Batar, who is mortally wounded, and you know they they go to confront Kuvira, who's like, "Oh, you guys survived," and the only person who she killed is Batar. The, I, the the irony of that is just too delicious uh, to resist. <laughs> I think Batar is a good you, guess. I because it really would. I, I think that kind of the. Uh, but then, but then, it, then what you don't get is what I think they're going to do, which is Batar re- reconciling with his family. Um, I realize his name is Batar Bayfong, right? That's weird. All right. Anyway, um, so <laughs> I don't know why that, I don't know why that popped up into my head, but um, you want to, but but it's important though. <laughs> the Bayfongs are important. Uh, but you know, we get this reconciliation theme throughout this season, uh, specifically with that family. Even last episode, that was all it was about. Um, so if we get Batar reconciling with Suyin, saying I didn't see what Kuvira had become. Uh, even though I love her, she's clearly lost her mind, and now I'm going to help you, which is what you get when you threaten, you know, when you, like, this is the, we've seen this before in other movies, where, you know, the person who you think loves you, you know, and then that causes an allegiance switch, you know, and so that might be, if that's their goal, they can't kill Batar because Batar has to have this or, change of Or heart. he could, you know, he could, with his last breath, Reconcile with his family and then die. <laughs> okay, now that they will not do, I guarantee you, because they will not show a slow death in this show. I think that's the only death they could show is the Disney kind of like whisper, very dramatic, like whispering, and they just and they just take their last breath and expire. Maybe. It's the least violent death possible. Okay, well, okay, and I was thinking of the the Earth Queen death is pretty brutal, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> but. And I keep thinking of that sequence, just of her, like, like her, she, like, raises her hand in the air and leaves, oh, man, that was crazy. Um, so, yeah, yeah, maybe that, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's Batar Jr. Um, it's, 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 who knows? Uh, and it's, I do want to ask you what you were talking about earlier, this this, this Phoenix thing. What, what, what are you talking about here? 
what thing? The <laughs> sorry, the Kuvira, um, Kuvira on the ship, right? The imagery of her. Oh, I said like re reborn in in fire. That was just in that final shot. I couldn't help but mentally add like, you know, her being surrounded with a wreath of flame. <laughs> just her expression is so just utterly uh, poisonous, and uh, and just so full of hatred. Oh yeah. And it's just, everything about it is just... Well, you sort of get this, you know, what's funny is that the, now you have two villains who are now more free without their significant other to let loose, whatever that is. Whether it's flying and becoming more peaceful like Zaheer or like going crazy <laughs> angry like Kuvira. But both both villains have seen this, so that's kind of interesting too. And I would, what I would love is the moment where Kuvira realizes after all that that the only thing she managed to accomplish with that is kill the one person who she felt the worst, uh, she felt the most bad about killing in that moment. Right, right, which is, you know, horrible, but also... Yeah. But she's the bad guy, and it's the finale. She's the bad guy, and it's the finale. That is also true. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, I think that, that about sums it up, yeah? Uh, I think so. Excellent. Um, so next week we have, um, what, what's it, the something Colossus, right? The Day of the Colossus, Day of the, Colossus. And the Last Stand. The last Stand, all right. Well, I'm uh, excited. I'm excited to see how this ends. I was worried, just from the titles. I should have trusted Brake a little bit more than I did. <laughs> I'm not going to call them Brake. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate myself for saying that, actually, a little bit. You know, okay, can I just say this really quick? Because I know there's people listening to this who Go for who uh, are Avatar you know, fans, and they, they say, Brake... Right, the, the, the Brian Knitsko and, and Mike Martino might not even mind Brike, but I do want to just say that for the sake of fandoms everywhere, when you abbreviate people's names or couples or partners, uh, when you say the Russo brothers or whatever, that's fine because of the Russo brothers. That's you know, but um, you know, Scarlett Johansson, being the primary example, hates ScarJo. She thinks it's the laziest piece of. She just <laughs> thinks it's the worst. So like, unless they self-referred as that, just. Why it doesn't take that long? I know that these Brian Knitsko and Mike DiMartino have long names, but just come on. You can say Mike and Brian, you know. I mean, you don't know them, but fine. At least you've differentiated them as people. Brike, really? Sorry. Okay, that's that's it. Um, <laughs> what would what would you? What if I told you that the Game of Thrones fandom refers to the showrunners as D and D? Okay, so but David Benioff and DB Weiss. But Dungeons and Dragons, you know. There's actual no, meaning. That's, that, that's still that's still how I read it. Whenever I see it, that's that's what it is, though. That's that's I think the joke, you know. Uh, and then some it, people say "germ" or something, "grum." Or... I still, yeah, no, I will. I I mentally pronounce it "germ," but some people <laughs> actually do write "g u r m." Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Which seems weird because it's the same number of letters. <laughs> well, it's so that they they want you to know that that's how they want you to pronounce this <laughs> exactly, this exactly. crazy abbreviation that he did not. They don't want you to waste time spelling the letters out. Oh yeah, why would you do that? Yeah. So um, anyway, so uh, what is it? Day of the Colossus. Yep. All right, Day of the Colossus next week. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs>